Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This is a joy. Uh, Anytime you see head of global research, that's usually someone who spends a lot of time on airplanes just recruiting people and all that and talking all, to their investor clients all you around know, the world Paul, yep. and they they sometimes they sort of know what they're talking about <laughs> in equities bonds and then sometimes they don't jp morgan takes a different tack their joyce chang is head of global research chair of global at research and she has prodigious abilities in the fixed income market including tenure at columbia university joyce wonderful to have you in our london studios let me ask an open question to get started what is the joyce chang observation on fixed income right now well it's great to be here tom well first of all we expect yields to go lower we're seeing synchronized central bank easing so it's not just all about the fed in total for what we expect in central bank easing we think that the ecb the BOJ is going to follow, and 13 um, emerging market central banks. So yields are going lower here. Um, and so we've seen you know, the best returns in fixed income markets in about the last five years. Um, you know, there's a little bit further for this to go as um, yields yeah. come down. So importantly, if prices up institutional retail yield down, do I want to lock in that appreciation or are you just comfortable now? You know, Joyce does this. She clips coupons down <laughs> exactly. in the new Park Avenue office. Jamie's got a desk down in the basement for Joyce to clip coupons. Well, you, you've got to <clears throat> hold on to these gains because what's ahead for the rest of the year, whether it's in fixed income or equities, is mostly about preserving the game. We are okay. expecting no more than like low single digit returns across any asset class um, in the second half of the year. And be careful in emerging markets because the FX side actually could be more volatile here. We've got to see what happens between the U.S. and China. So, Joyce, you mentioned uh, kind of a, a global coordinated dovishness by uh, some of the central banks around the world. Does that suggest that we maybe take on a little bit more risk? We think about emerging market debt, maybe U.S. high yield well, if you want to achieve a 5% yield at this point, you have to look at emerging markets, fixed income, or at high-yield bonds. Um, we still think that the dollar debt is a better place to be right now. I think there is still FX risk. Um, if you have more tensions developed between the U.S. and China, and you have CNY depreciation, that could have an effect on other currencies. And the time, Joyce, that we've got left with you, I want to talk about your jo- serious job of head of research for Uh, one of the world's great, great banks. Right now, there are people all across the world getting ready for the December exams of the CFA program. And a lot of those people, level one, level two, level three, people that want to get into the act are going, is there going to be a research capability five or 10 or 15 years from now? Restate the value of research to a major bank moving forward. Well, the CFA exam is always a big deal in research departments, in particular the credit groups, the company analysts, all as a group um, study for this. And we're very proud of the CFAs we have at J.P. Morgan. But there's always going to be a need for thought leadership. Now, you're going to have to incorporate more AI, examine more alternative and high-frequency data. But the thought leadership is all about the judgment. It's all about connecting the different parts of the story. And now it's about putting the geopolitical overlay on this. Yeah. And it's... 
Yeah, I mean, and I, much higher frequency um, data points are needed and much greater right. bouts of flash crashes. I didn't ask for me. I asked for afterthought. She's 12 years old, and what you're ta- <laughs> telling me is she needs a double major in international relations and finance, right? Well, the the geopolitics, I mean, a lot of my background had been in policy. And so for a long time, the view on geopolitics is, well, it doesn't determine the trend. It's just the volatility. Now we're getting some real questions about that. And we're really seeing that play through in the way that we're looking at business confidence. And that's playing out in global capex. Joyce Chang, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Chair of their global research, really can't say enough about it. She took, this is a huge, I get goosebumps over it (laughs) because of the history of Manhattan and Columbia College, Columbia University. She took the John Jay Award one year, which is like super duper teacher award. From the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios uh, in New York, this is our China discussion of the day. She's Catherine Mann, uh, who's left a trail of debris in international economics for 20 or 30 years. Is a sympathy project. Citigroup picked her up a couple years ago from the OECD in Paris. How is it working out at Citigroup? What a change. From right. from Brandeis yeah. and your your important right. academic work, mm-hmm. and then OECD mm-hmm. with Anil Guria, and mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're working for the animals in New York. Well, I think the um, you know the issue that is most important is uh, the interaction of financial markets and the real economy. Yeah, and I think we're seeing that uh, playing out right now as financial markets are trying to bet on what is going to happen at the G20, and it either could be relatively better for the real economy or relatively worse for the real economy. Let's back up then. I was at a meeting with you and Michael Rosenberg of Bloomberg a million years ago. Mm. You were like 18 or 20 just out of (laughs) MIT, where the two of you codified this idea of family dysfunction between China Mm -hmm. and the United States. Folks, to be careful here, Dr. Mann is acclaimed for her research on the back and forth, almost the game theory, figure, mm. you know, Mary Tyler Moore, ordinary people bring it over to China in the US. How's that dysfunction going right now? Well, I think we're seeing a, a, a very difficult um, period of time where uh, we're trying to decide whether we're going to more deeply engage uh, with the marriage with uh, China uh, that's been uh, developing with supply chain or whether we're gonna divorce. Uh, because, um, you know, you can't break up these supply chains uh, and, and expect to continue to trade with them in the same way. But we have a new president mm. with a more mercantile tact, and yet, to your research, we're addicted to yeah. the price of those goods, aren't we? Well, so I think there are a couple of things uh, that we ought to think about. We're, I mean, addicted to the price of the goods, um, but they are, they are also addicted to our uh, capital flows. So it goes both ways. They've invested in, in U.S. Uh, uh, businesses and, and U.S. treasuries. And we're, we have uh, deeply engaged with them both to sell products in their location as well as to sell products uh, in terms of exports. So we're very deeply engaged with China. Our businesses are very deeply engaged. I want to continue to be deeply engaged. Uh, and yet that's not the direction that the current policy is uh, going. The current policy is uh, designed to divorce. So. Uh, um, you kind of can't have both of those 
uh, in a marriage. Right. So, Dr. Mann, given that we are mutually dependent with, with China, clearly uh, we know that the president later today is getting on Air Force One, heading yeah. over to Osaka. Mm-hmm. What do you think is a reasonable outcome here from this weekend's talks? Well, our base case is that they um, shake hands and agree to uh, go back to the negotiating table uh, and avoid, uh, therefore, putting the 25% on the last tranche of the $300 billion worth of uh, trade from China. And so that's that's our base case. And we think that that's a very important outcome. It's, it's kind of minimalist uh, in that it doesn't take off any of the tariffs, but uh, it is a, a better outcome in that it doesn't add to the tariffs and, and more deeply uh, cause distress in, distress in financial markets and in business investment and the real economy. So it's, it's, it's a better outcome than the alternative, right. which, is, which is no, which is a storming away from the table. Um, so, uh, but on the other hand, you know, that's, that's pretty minimalist. It doesn't reduce the uncertainty associated with maybe there will be tariffs in the future. We're not quite so sure. Um, and uh, that type of um, uncertainty erodes business confidence. And uh, if they're going to have a lower confidence in the rules of the game going forward, that's the challenge, you know, give me some rules, I'll play by the game. And then, um, you know, you end up with lower investment, you get lo- lower trade, uh, and you get uh, employment consequences from that. Well, going forward for the next step would be sitting down again and trying to close this deal. Do you think that a meaningful deal is is an option here? Can we get a meaningful deal with China? Can China get a meaningful deal with the United States? So uh, uh, some of the issues that that started this uh, round of of tariff, uh, well, this whole round of trade negotiations and so forth, are very serious issues having to do with intellectual property, um, forced technology transfer, joint ownership, and cybersecurity. Those were the elements that were put forward at the beginning of the the whole relationship um, breakdown with China. Right now, um, the strategy is not focused so much on those issues. Uh, The tools that have been used to kind of pry uh, those negotiations open have been tariffs that has led to much reduced trade with China so I think there is this there is this sort of um, disconnect between the objectives uh, is to you know enhance intellectual property allow for broader joint ownership uh, allow uh, for protected technology transfer that would more deeply engage the US with China the tariffs are to divorce our relationship with China, to break up those supply chains, make them go to some other country. So there's a real disconnect between these two different objectives uh, in the current uh, policy set. We are 15 years on since your seminal work on codependency and in all of these dysfunctions. We had on Peter Navarro the other day who espoused his view of economics, which to me is exceptionally static, almost in a true classical economic standpoint. You work out of Harvard and MIT in a hugely dynamic regime. Is the dynamics now radically different from what you looked at 15 years ago? Have we moved on to even more interdependencies and correlations where anybody's policy is really going to have little effect? Well, actually, what's most uh, disturbing to me is is that this uh, this uh, con- this trade situation that we have right now with with China is is emblematic of ten years of stagnation 
in terms of global integration. Uh, we had, uh, you know, earlier in my career, we talked about deeping, deep, more deeply integrated uh, global supply chains, mm -hmm. uh, a greater variety of products crossing borders, lower prices available to both businesses and consumers. And, you know, all that stopped about 10 years ago. Well, and so, and so, yeah. where we are is is kind of like trying to fight a, a, the last war. That's of right where we wanted war. to go. I mean, yeah. the way we got to get was the tragedy yeah. of two world wars. Yeah. Have we have we just lost our collective memory? of the Atlantic Charter and the early GATT initiatives. Well, we can look at, you know, there is a slowdown in, you know, no multilateral trade agreement has, has succeeded, and there aren't even any successful, or very few, successful uh, plurilateral agreements. This is part of the sort of the need to revitalize the WTO, what should it be doing to, in today's world, which is which is very complex, uh, with lots of um, competing interests. Uh, but, but the bottom line is we have 10 years of uh, very sluggish growth, little investment, um, productivity growth being slow, uh, rising inequality, and that also is a period of time when global trade has stagnated. So, you know, most people think about there was too much globalization. Uh, I think we've had yep. too little. So, Dr. Mann, you were mentioning before we went on the air how you've been traveling around the world meeting yeah. with the, the largest institutional investors. What's number one on their issues that they want to talk to you about? Uh... They're really concerned about where the Fed is going to go. Okay. That's, that's their, their key issue. Um, some of them have a longer-term agenda, and so that the, you know, that's, uh, they're looking about productivity. Uh, they're looking at inequality, specifically intergenerational inequality, and what the implication of that might be for uh, wealth management issues and, and uh, that sort of thing. So some of them have a very long-term perspective mm -hmm. and are concerned about those issues. Uh, other ones have uh, more short-term, immediate uh, uh, perspective on the, on the Fed actions. Catherine Mann, thank you so much. With Citigroup right. always, thank you very much. just really honored to have you here uh, in a time of extraordinary international politics and international economics. Darkening the door, Timothy O'Brien, Bloomberg Opinion, truly expert on the finances and much of the past of the president of the United States. Tim O'Brien, the debates tonight, New York Times had that great spread of the buttons. My first buttons were Nixon Cabot Lodge, 60, <laughs> and Kennedy for president, 60. What was the first button you had as a kid? Wow, the first button I had as a kid was Carter Reagan. Carter Ray, God, he's young. Yeah, that's where I was. I, that's you too? <laughs> I think I was. Okay. I came from a Nixon household. My father just went, you know, right down the line yeah. of Republicans. Does anybody do that anymore? Do people vote straight line anymore? Uh, that's a great question. I, I would I would think yes. I yeah. would think the majority of voters do, but that's just based on instinct. <laughs> yeah. Tim O'Brien with us. Tim, I want to go to the debates, but I want to go in tangentially with a House Democratic vote. Uh, Pramila Jayal uh, of Seattle, 7th District, they voted 79% for President Obama. They boosted it up to 80% for Hillary Clinton. Are the liberals driving the Democratic bus in the House? Well, I mean, I think the liberals, and particularly women, are the people that put the House back into Democratic hands at the midterms. But I think that was a very specific election. I think, I think, um, I think the, the, what you're going to have to see now is whether or not the issues in, in, at the midterms translated into... Uh, what we're going to see in the general election. Will we see moderation in this debate tonight, or is it going to be a progressive free-for-all? Um, 
I think you'll see a lot of both. I mean, you know, Joe Biden is obviously the moderate. He's tomorrow. Traditional candidate yeah. tomorrow. Tonight, you're going to have, um, I think, a lot of people who need to differentiate themselves from one another. And they're going to differentiate themselves from issues that um, uh, are, are going to be flashpoints for pro the progressive portion, I think, of the Democratic voters. So just following up on Tom's comment, the question I have as we kind of get into these debates and we begin this long slog of uh, Democratic debates, can a centrist... Well, do you think the Democrats will put a centrist up at the end of the day? Uh, I think there's a big push for that to happen. I think people, I think th th there are pragmatists within the party who are saying we, that the party needs a ticket that can beat Trump and that the candidates that Trump is most worried about are, are white males currently. I think there's also a, a good argument to be made that the Democrats should show that a diverse ticket also can win in the United States. And so I think that those are the conflicting things here, but I don't think it's inevitable um, that either a, uh, a more left-leaning candidate or a moderate candidate is gonna come, on top, come out on top here. You've seen Elizabeth Warren, who's done great homework and really nailed down positions on a variety of issues, surge because of that. You see Biden surging because I think he's reassuring, you know, to post-industrial blue-collar workers as someone they can relate to. And I think both of those tensions are, are in competition with one another. You know, the other big issue, which arguably President Trump raised back in 2015 to 2016, is immigration. And I'll tell you, the images we're starting to see, I, I'm just wondering how how front and center immigration will be, not only in the, the debates over the next couple of nights, but just in the election. Well, I think like everything around public policy, this depends on, on how uh, principled and well-spoken Democrats and Republicans want to be about something that's no longer about just immigration policy. This is a humanitarian crisis. You have people dying at the border. You have detention centers that are brimming with children taking care of children in squalid, inhumane conditions. And it, it, it screams out for a policy solution that in an ideal world would transcend politics. Yeah. I want to go to your real house. It's going to be hard to believe this, Paul, but I was had a beverage in my hand the other day, and I was <laughs> quoting Tim O'Brien. It's, it's a shock that that would. It's it's shocked that that would happen. <laughs> you are expert on how the president rationalizes until he doesn't. How do you interpret the change, the shift in Iran, the change, the shift in Mexico, and on and on and on. You've witnessed that. Am I right? You've witnessed that behavior yeah. for decades? I mean, this has been pretty typical of Donald Trump. He, I think the important thing to think about the president is that he does not think strategically. He thinks cinematically. And he's usually thinking about narratives, and he's usually thinking about his own role on the stage. So his first instinct is always going to be, how does this make me appear? And what he wants to always appear as is a man of action who finds decisive solutions in a fast and sometimes blunt force way, even if that doesn't achieve his goals. So you saw, and, and, and it creates these self-contradictions. He wants to be you know, carry a big stick and be very macho on policy in the Middle East. If anyone gets in our way, we will obliterate but them. But the reality is he doesn't want to engage in a, in a deep-seated military way. Well, would you suggest he's an arch-isolationist? Uh, he, he, can't, he can't be an arch As Somebody who is on Twitter 24-7 is not an isolationist. Uh, what he is is I think he's an unsophisticated person who hasn't thought through the implications of his own beliefs. And what's more important to him is atmospherics and, and I think it's and self-promotion than policy goals. Right. Tim O'Brien, thank you so much. Writing for Bloomberg Opinion, 
very, you know, whatever your politics, very, very important on the finances of the private citizen, Trump. Right now, we monitor Stephen Stanley. He has been fabulous engaging the gross domestic product of this this nation. Stephen Stanley, Amherst Pierpont, how gross is our gross domestic product right now? Are we above 2%? Good morning, Tom. Uh, Yes, I think we are. I mean, you know, obviously the first quarter number was very good, although it was the the mix wasn't great. I think what you've seen in the first half of the year is what we've seen in five of the last six years, which is you get a weak underlying first quarter. Consumption is always, for whatever reason, soft in Q1, and then it roars back in Q2, and it seems like we're, we're seeing that pattern all over again. So, Stephen, Tom and I are hearing more and more uh, economists, strategists, fund managers talking about the recession perhaps mid-2020. Is that something you subscribe to? No, I I think the economy has very good underlying momentum. Um, Obviously, the trade situation has been a a bit of a drag in the short run, and and certainly you could envision a scenario where, um, you know, the trade talks totally break off, we get into a massive tariff war, and and then that kind of changes things. But anything short of that, I I think the economy has good staying power. Stephen Sally, the president putting out extraordinary headlines in free flow here uh, with Ms. Bartiromo over at Fox Biz, mentioning Japan, mentioning World War III. Forget about that. Here's the headline, Steve Stanley, that matters. Trump says the U.S. should have Draghi instead of, quote, our Fed person, unquote. What would it be like if Mario Draghi was running the Fed based on his history, his challenges, different challenges? Yeah, in Europe, well, what would what would Chairman Draghi look like? I mean, obviously, Draghi is someone that's been very dovish over the course of his tenure. Um, you know, arguably justified given the difficulties in Europe. It is kind of ironic because certainly Trump does want seem to want someone that's extremely dovish at the Fed, and the fact is, he had probably the most dovish Fed chairman in the history of the institution, and he uh, he let her go. So, you know, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Maybe you get what you deserve, I, I suspect. Uh, it sounds like a Carol King song with Goffin uh, <laughs> uh, from uh, Alley here in New York years ago. The president goes on, Mr. Stanley, to say he has high rates while President Obama had cheap money. I'm lost. Translate. I think he's jealous that uh, we had zero rates throughout uh, his predecessor's tenure. I I don't know that that's a good thing because uh, that's indicative of a weak economy. I think he should just focus on GDP and and try to make political hay out of the fact that the economy uh, has grown faster over the last few years. So, Stephen, you know, we've heard and read, I think, over the last several months, some you know, a growing argument that maybe global growth rates uh, are going to be lower going forward than maybe we've seen over the last couple of decades. Is that something you think is a reasonable view? Well, yeah, I I think there's not much question about that if you compare it back to, say, the 90s or even the 2000s. and there are a couple of things going on. One is, is simply demographics. As the population ages, the growth in labor supply slows down. 
And the second thing is uh, we've had very low productivity growth uh, for most of this decade, uh, something that Tom and I have talked about a lot over the last several years. And uh, the good news there is there does seem to be some upward slope. Um, you know, we had fat, somewhat faster productivity growth last year. The, the Q1 number uh, for this year was very good. So I, I think there's a chance that productivity growth is accelerating, which would be very good news for the economy. It would mean higher potential growth and probably higher actual yeah. growth than what we've seen the last um, you know, for, through most of this expansion. But we're not going to get back to the kind of 3% potential GDP type right. uh, scenario that, w- that we had in prior decades. Why is productivity predicted to accelerate? Is it a capital ratio, a labor ratio, or is it the pixie dust on the right-hand side of the equation? Well, I would say it's a combination of the last two things. It's, you know, number one is that we've we've had stronger investment on the back of uh, of tax reform, and, and there's yeah. some cloudiness there in the short term right now because of uncertainties around trade. But if if those are resolved, I think you should continue to okay. see better investment, and that investment will provide right. better plant and equipment for workers to be okay. more productive. Let's do this. Steve Stanley with Amherst Pierpont. This is the president says he has a right to fire Powell. President Trump says Powell should have never raised rates as high as he did. Now the most dangerous interview of the day, the week, the month, the year. And Paul, it starts with the palladium-plated 2011 collection FOMAT. Alligator Hermes Birkenbag. And what's that going to set you back? It's going to set you back $42,000. It's just one of the small items available (laughs) this paycheck. (laughs) On Real Real, an online. The Real Real. The Real Real, an online marketplace. Who would have thunk it? But uh, an online marketplace for used luxury goods. Uh, This company, Real Real, is going public. I believe they're pricing their IPO tonight. Uh, So we'll see how the market feels about that. So to talk about this company, we're fortunate to have our good friend Seema Shah. She's an analyst covering all things retail for Bloomberg Intelligence. She joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So Seema, an online marketplace for used luxury goods. There's such a thing as that? There is. There are actually many things like that. There's a lot of competitors in this space. Um, they're trying to make the market for selling these used goods more efficient. But the problem with this space is you're spending a lot of money, as Tom pointed out. So you want to make sure what you get is not counterfeit. And it's that authentication process that makes this uh, how profit they, prohibitive. How do they do that? How do they authenticate stuff? So if I'm going to pay $42,000 for whatever yes. Tom was describing, yes. I know what I'm getting. So they hire uh, people to specifically look at each item. So if it's jewelry, there's a gemologist. And so it's a very time-consuming and hard-to-scale process. And should that item be returned, they will have to re-authenticate it. So the margins on that second sale of the same item would be less. Is it profit-making, or is this like Uber and Lyft where we're on hopes, dreams, and the fumes of 2025? The latter. We're on the hopes and dreams. Right now, there is no money to be made. And there's, as I said, a lot of competition. So what they need to have in a marketplace to get, you need to have a lot of sellers, but you also need to have a lot of buyers. But in order to get sellers, they have to make sure that they make enough money on each product that they sell. And there's a lot of competition to even get the sellers from even people like Poshmark, Fashion File, um, 
uh, eBay even, and well, they may pay the seller more than the right. real real. I mean, Seema, this says Paul Sweeney, if nothing ever does. Actually, it says John Farrell. John who? <laughs> uh, the Saint Laurent Jimmy 20 slide sandals, uh, estimated retail 545 marked down to 445 $89 off now, 356 <laughs> for a pair of sliders to walk vet bill with. I mean, that's what people are buying, right? Essentially, yeah. So it is a deal on luxury, but are you getting what you paid for? That's what's costing these and companies a lot. To be clear, this is used stuff. I mean, this is used I mean, stuff. This if is I buy these from yes. John Farrow, he's already worn those Saint Laurent sliders. Yes. 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 <laughs> Somebody so has. Do, so this isn't, you know, the the thing about the I don't know, just the Amazons or the Ebays. It's yes. about scale. So yes. how do you scale this business? Like how many? Units did they actually transact? Or I mean, it just right. So their total GMV in 2018 which is was gross merchandise yes, volume. Okay, 710 million, and that's significantly less than obviously an Amazon or many other peers like even Farfetch who's selling new luxury goods, which is over a billion or selling goods. So there, it's they sold a total in the life of the company 9.4 million items, but still you have to continue to get those sellers and you have to keep driving the buyers. And I think in this case, because of the sellers can sort of jump from platform to platform, it's really hard to keep them unless you pay them a lot. So that affects your gross margin. How long has this company been around? Um, not too long. I want to say it hours. <laughs> so, but no. I'm just Maybe wondering like five, you know, six years, I don't have the exact cause you have to build up some trust. Don't you with your, you do. And I think they have trust, but there are so many other competitors and someone like right. fashion file has a, you know, has been invested in by Neiman Marcus. Neiman Marcus already has the stores and has the relationships with the brand. So that might give them an and edge too. So what do they make on a Patek Calatrava Tiffany's watch, 23500 They're moving it out the door for $15,000? <laughs> Typically on an item, they'll get about 70% gross margin on the first sale. If they resell it, the gross margin goes down to the high teens. So... Then, of course, that depends on the product, but that's typically what it goes after they've paid the person who sold. The so item it's to on them. consignment. It is. And, and I'm selling my Patek there because I'm broke. Yeah. And and I'm going to get a hunk of it, and they get a hunk. How much do they get? Of they a get about sale? 30%. 3-0. 20, yeah, 30% versus someone like an eBay or Poshmark that's taking 20%. So in the movie that, that won the Academy Award this year, The Green Book, and the guy's so broke before he goes out on tour with the guy, he takes his watch into the pawn shop in Queens or Brooklyn in the 60s. Has anything changed? Um, I guess this would be authenticated and you could sell to more people okay. than in Queens. Yeah. <laughs> and you can transact without talking to anybody. Interesting. So it's um, is this a growing market? Are they growing their business? They are growing their business from a top line perspective, as are many of their peers. But the question is, at what point will they be able to be profitable? And how do you get this to scale so that you can authenticate these products and move them through your system at a faster rate and a less costly rate? And so how do they attract, I mean, who, who's a typical seller? Is it someone who doesn't want to walk down to the pawn shop or it doesn't There are want people who have these luxury products that they may have only used once or twice sitting yeah. in their closet. So they're targeting them. Like, hey, why don't you monetize? Really? Yeah, monetize okay. what you already have, luxury that's already out there. So Pharaoh's huge. I mean, John Pharaoh's just like ginormous. He sees the Patek World Time Watch list forty eight thousand. They're moving it out the door thirty five thousand five hundred. Does he get to see it before he buys it? No. 
What? You have to trust that the Even site has Pharaoh wouldn't do that. authenticated the product. And so that is what they have built up by, you know, getting their name out. So the real real is trusted as a far, but so are many of their peers. Wow. What's it? Is it like is an average item? Is it a thousand dollar item or is some of these fifty thousand dollar items? For luxury, I think it goes depending on if it's jewelry, clothing, bags. I think there's a wide range. Right now, is there, did, did, did they guarantee it? If I buy something, do they guarantee it? The or? authenticity. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, that's a big risk for them. Well, yeah, and if you don't like it, you send it back. They have to do it again. Make sure you didn't do anything to it. Ah. Uh, and okay. that's the cost for. All right, Tom. Yeah. I think you've got a new app for your phone here. <laughs> I, I just, I just hope Mrs. Keene's not listening. That's I think what I really hope. Riley from St. Louis, she knew all about this. She was all over it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, does it have a buzz? I mean, you know, it does the, have a buzz. It's supposed to be a very hot, from an IPO perspective. It does have a buzz. A lot of these. Why are they going IPO if they're that small? I mean, what's what's their motivation to go IPO? They could even do a direct listing. They need the money. Um, the founder of this company had been in a couple of prior companies during the dot-com world. And so I think that's part of what's driving okay. it. And also it's just a hot market for this retail consumer tech IPOs, given what you saw with something like Stitch Fix, Chewy. Uh, so they're performing much better than let's say the IPOs of Uber and Lyft. Their prices on watches are stunning. I mean, are people lined up 10 deep to buy this stuff? <laughs> I don't know about that, but they do have buyers, but you know, you need to have increased velocity to really make any money. All right. Well, we're going to look at this. Tom, we're going to pay attention to this. You know, I love, I'm going to report I, I, back on this IPO tomorrow, how it trades, I, how it opens. The yeah. Equinot, uh, really rare watch, Patek. It's got a secondary dial on it. Estimated retail 34,000. They're selling it for 4,000 more. That's interesting. Oh, oh. The, the real real selling it for real more than so that's the, the real real price. The, that's how in demand that watch is. Yep. Not that I would ever own the Aquanaut travel time watch with a cool second drive. No, <laughs> but there are people out there that are. There would be. If Mike Mayo, if you're listening, I got a watch for you. Seema <laughs> Shah, Bloomberg you. Intelligence, covering all things retail forced. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.